Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network with host General David Grange and co-host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our 26th program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 11th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by several guests we've had before and two new ones. First, Ambassador Lawrence Butler, Colonel Retired Mark Mitchell, Colonel Retired Dave Johnson, and a man named Jason Black, who's a former military officer and now works for another administration. And I'm Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction because I'm only the dealer in this card game. It's important to remember that on this program, we are only speaking from open source. None of us are going to any classified materials any of us may have access to. We're talking only from the things we see in the news that you may see yourself. Also, people are going on their expertise and experience, but also ensuring that they don't talk about anything classified. Also, we don't want to traffic in any secrets or do anything at all to tip off the Russians, the People's Republic of China, or any potential enemies about what the U.S. might be up to. And tonight, we'll be covering things that we've covered before, pretty much in the same order, but a week later, talking about what we've seen in the last week, what are the war aims of the two countries and any other participants, what may be going on in the international community, things that are affecting the world at large, even talking about things outside the military realm, some things about finance and other things, then the status of any peace or ceasefire or truce efforts, and finally, what do we think about uh, the way ahead? We'll also have a kind of a Jeopardy round like we did last week. That proved to be a, a hit with the audience, and we certainly appreciate that. It's important to remember, too, that we're on 12 different platforms. Please subscribe. Your favorite platform is available, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and uh, our own RSS feed, as well as Amazon and others. Also, we have other programs, one in particular, the uh, Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by a wounded aviator, Patrick Scroggin combat attack pilot who had a horrific crash in Iraq during the war at night, lost his leg. He fought his way back. He's a super athlete, a super hunter, a super motivator, has a great program on Monday nights. So now we'll go to our panel. Ambassador Butler, sir, please give a short background sketch. Over to you, sir. Hey, Ranger Doug. Thanks very much uh, for for having me on again, and especially with this uh, distinguished uh, and exciting uh, lineup. 40 years uh, with the State Department, I think in my career, if, if we've had a war in the last 20 years, I either started it, was there while it was happening, or helped clean up after. I was very fortunate after being an American ambassador in the Balkans, Macedonia, chief of mission in Yugoslavia with Milosevic, that I got selected and spent five years as the political advisor to Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, dealing with Afghanistan, went with Lloyd Austin for Operation New Dawn in Iraq, 2010-2011, and then came back and was the civilian deputy to the command at U.S. European Command from 11 to 13 before I punched out. About half my career in the Balkans, another half uh, on the front lines with Russia, either in Finland or behind the lines Thank- during the Iron Curtain in communist Bulgaria. And with that, over to you. Thank you, Ambassador. And I've been very fortunate to have Ambassador Butler as a friend and mentor for nearly a decade now. And uh, when I first met him, I couldn't spell Department of State, but now I can. Next, I would like to introduce... Colonel Retired Mark Mitchell. Mark, over to you for a short background sketch. Good evening, Ranger Doug. And uh, like Ambassador Butler, pleased to be able to join you again this evening. Uh, as you stated, 
30 years as a Army Special Forces officer, infantry officer, a veteran of Iraq, first Gulf War, Afghanistan, second Gulf War in Iraq, served at the Pentagon, National Security Council at the White House, retired in 15, and then came back into the Pentagon in uh, 2017 as the Acting Assistant Secretary for Special Operations. I spent about two and a half years there and am now self-employed and remain uh, passionate about all of these issues, uh, even though I'm no longer working in the industry. But again, excited to join you tonight and to my uh, dear friends and erstwhile colleagues. Thank you, Mark. And now also then Colonel Retired, but also Dr. David Johnson, who works at the RAND Corporation. Sir, please, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Ranger Doug. Um, I was an officer in the Army for 24 years, uh, infantry quartermaster, and 20 years in field artillery. Um, in the usual places in the United States, Korea, Germany, Hawaii, and Belgium. I retired in 97 and joined the RAND Corporation after about a year and a half stint in the civilian world. Um, my work focuses on military innovation. Uh, my first book was called Fast Tanks and Heavy Bombers, about how the Army dealt with mechanization and aviation between the two world wars. But I also look at land warfare, joint operations, uh, and I'm doing a lot of work right now with uh, the joint staff and the Army on future concepts. Uh, the highlight of my time at RAND so far um, has been I was on loan to the Army again for two years in 2012 to 14, where I established and ran General Odierno's uh, Chief of Staff of the Army Strategic Studies Group. Back over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate having you with us. And uh, we've known each other for a while virtually. I'm certainly glad to have you with us tonight in person. And your expertise and experience are, are, are really immeasurably important. So this is going to be a great and very heavily loaded panel tonight. Jason, over to you, sir, for a quick background sketch. Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. My name is Jason Black, and I did 29 years in the Army as an infantryman, a tanker, and then as a Special Forces officer, and then went and served in the interagency for several years. I had the privilege to serve in both Bosnia and Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Philippines, and Syria as well. And it's a pleasure to be here tonight with all of you gentlemen. Thanks, Jason. Well, then we'll move to our first question, and that is, where do we think we are in the war right now? Uh, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, I would like to then pass that first question to Ambassador Butler, please. Ambassador, over to you. Uh, you're going to be so sorry you've given me uh, the first chance to pull the pin in the hand grenade. On my calendar, which is right in front of me while we talk, is the date of May 9th. This is the date the Russians celebrate the victory in Europe Day. We do it a day or two earlier. Uh, they do it on the 9th. Uh, President Vladimir Putin has set this date. He needs a ginormous victory to celebrate in Red Square with the troops marching on the assumption he's got anybody left who can march or any tanks that you know, haven't been blown to pieces. The concern I have right now is when they shifted from Kiev, you know, they failed you know, in, that, in that assault. They pulled everybody out. Now they're in the east in the Donbass region. They still haven't fully captured Mariupol, which is astonishing. You know, the progress on the ground, uh, people thought it was going to be wide open fields, uh, wide open tank fields. And this is where I have to like be, beat up on the U.S. Army, where the, you know, where the U.S. Army wants to like, you know, roll the tanks out and run across big open fields. Uh, if you look at a satellite photo of the eastern Ukraine, 
it looks like Kansas, you know, with basically, you know, you know rectangles that when you fly over, like, you know, look at that. Well, it turns out it wasn't as easy as, as people thought it was going to be. So their progress has been very, very limited. The shift, the focus is I'm a civ mill interagency guy, and I love logistics. Right now, the Russians are going after the logistical nodes in an effort to do two things, impede the flow of Western armaments to in support of the Ukrainians, but it's also going to have the probably unintended effect, but maybe intended, of cutting off humanitarian assistance supplies necessary to keep the 35 million people that are still in Ukraine alive and still on the side of the government that's in Kiev. So the battle, you know, we're looking at it. It's not quite trench warfare, uh, but it's it's incremental. You know, it's like watching my the old Internet Windows you know, browser, that blue bar that was like blinking, 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 you know, 85 percent, 85 percent, maybe 86 percent. So this is going to be a long, long slog, which makes me wonder if Vladimir Putin doesn't have some surprise up his sleeve that it won't be a black swan. You could actually predict what he might do. But right now, our fingers are crossed and hope is never a good strategy. And it makes for terrible tactics. Our hope is he doesn't do something really, really stupid. Thank you, Ambassador. Appreciate your answer and uh, a very nice way to set it up. Mark, over to you, sir. Well, thanks, uh, Ranger Doug. I think I, I, I do tend to agree with the ambassador's assessment. I think Russia is in a increasingly a difficult position strategically you know, with the impending European embargo against Russian oil, I think they're they're going to be in a tough spot. And, you know, you find people say, well, sure, they'll just sell it to China and to India. But it's not as simple as that because the infrastructure, I don't think, is there. And so as we approach this 9 May anniversary, there is definitely increasing pressure upon the Russian economy. For starters, the Russian army in the field has not enjoyed the kind of success. And, you know, we talked earlier in previous episodes about the shift of the fight to the Donbass and how it might be more favorable to the Russian forces, yet they've been unable to make any significant gains in the Donbass. And I think that it speaks highly of both of the Ukrainian resistance and the support they're getting from Western nations. But also, it just reflects the fact the Russian forces continue to suffer the same type of issues that we've seen from the beginning. Poor logistics and an inability to integrate combined arms efforts on the battlefield for those effects to make those types of rapid gains. And I think they're going to continue to plague them. And I think we'll continue to see this stalemate, even in eastern Ukraine, where the Russians continue to pour in more resources. So I think overall, the the trend line is certainly in favor of the Ukraine in the long term, unless we see something like introduction of tactical nuclear weapons, which I still think is an extraordinarily outside possibility. Thank you, Mark. I'd like to pass the floor then to Jason. You know, uh, I'll kind of frame my comments uh, first uh, from the Russian perspective and then from the Ukrainian perspective. Putin's plan for the invasion didn't work. And so uh, and he's trying to paint a picture that they're adapting their strategy or, or redefining their objectives, but really they've been their hand has been forced. And so the shift from making a move against Kiev is now looking a lot more like an offensive in the east, which although the terrain looks advantageous for 
the kind of heavy ground warfare that the Russians like to do. I think the Ukrainians are doing a great job of ruining their momentum with a variety of weapon systems and technologies that the Russians just aren't prepared to counter. So, um, you know, the internet is full of tank turrets laying upside down on the roads in the Ukraine because of the effectiveness of some of these shoulder-fired weapons. And so the, the Russians are in the process of shifting away from maneuver warfare and long columns of tanks on the, on the highways to firepower, particular, particularly long-range firepower, artillery and, and uh, missiles. And you see them getting more kinetic, particularly against civilian areas. So they're going after non-military targets, probably to break the the will and the morale of the population. So that's a shift in tactics more, more so than it is perhaps a shift in strategy. Uh, at home on the home front, Putin's state media machine is spewing misinformation and disinformation. And that is probably well, the only thing that's keeping him in a position to continue the fight is the fact that he's pulling the wool over the Russian population's eyes to the best of his ability. Uh, unfortunately, in this day and age, that's only going to work for so long. And, and I think we'll start to see cracks in that. The other thing that's working against them is the, the Russian economy is suffering from uh, some of the sanctions, although we haven't really seen the kind of sanctions that we thought we would see. Uh, it is hurting their economy. And at some point in time, he's going to have to reckon with the population for that. On the Ukrainian side, they've been successful tactically in the initial stages of the fight, blunted the initial Russian offensive, and they now have the material and ideological support and the goodwill of, of most of the Western world, if not all of it. That's a huge strategic advantage for them, because when this started, I'm not sure that anybody was, was really in, in the Ukraine's corner. Everybody was kind of, uh, you know, let's wait and see what happens, and then we'll figure out what the rest of us are going to do. Uh, the Ukrainian Defense Forces fully mobilized. They're experienced now after several months of continuous combat, and they're pretty damn effective, surprisingly effective, surprisingly synchronized at the operational level also. And, and they're well supported both by their own population and then by the influx of arms and, and logistics from the rest of Europe and the United States. I think time is on the Ukraine side right now based on popular sentiment and the increasing efforts of NATO and the U.S. to sync up and spin up a logistical advisory material and financial support for the Ukrainians. Thank you, Jason. And Dave, over to you, please, sir. I certainly hope what my friends on the, the channel tonight are saying is true. I've got a little bit of a contrarian view, um, and it goes back to looking at what the Russian army does. I wrote an article for a friend of ours, Ranger Doug knows, Charlie Dunlap, who's on a, a loop we chair. He has a thing called Lawfire, which is a blog that talks about issues mainly focused on law of the Duke University Law School. What I wrote yesterday was that I don't know what's going on in the Ukraine. And I think what we do know is coming from a perspective that is totally based on Ukrainian lenses. Uh, the Ukrainians control the narrative, and they're doing a brilliant job at it. Kudos! Uh, but we see what they want to see them to, you know, they want us to see. They guide the reporters to the places they want them to take pictures of. They give us estimates of Russian casualties, but I've heard nothing about Ukrainian losses that are specific. Uh, the status of their units. Uh, we hear about how the Russians are at so many percent, whatever. Some of that's from our own intelligence, perhaps. But we know a lot about the Russians from a Ukrainian perspective. I just don't know what ground truth is on the other side or what it is with the Ukrainians. I have a view that you know Putin tried something at the beginning that is not unlike what he's done in the past, which is try a coup de main. In other words, land a special force 
near the capital or major city, then rapidly move there. And when the citizens of that city see the dreaded Red Army show up, they throw their hands up and, and say, we're done. He tried this in Hungary. The Russians, the Soviets did in the 50s. It didn't work. It became a grueling battle of attrition till they crushed the opposition. He tried it in Czechoslovakia. It did work. He tried it in Afghanistan. The Russian did. And it worked. We forget that the Russians took down all of Afghanistan in about six weeks and then lost control because they couldn't cover down on it. Not unlike, by the way, you know, what happened to us. So I think, and I would recall that the Russians, when they left, they left in good order, driving through the Sanglang Tunnel with, with flags flying. And Najibullah, the head of Afghanistan in power for two more years, and only fell once Russians took assistance stopped. So our view about, you know, what the Russians are capable of, I think is also shaped by the, they just can't do combined arms because they have a conscript force that has no NCOs and very micromanaging officers. By the way, that's the Russian army and the Soviet army have always been that way. And they have pretty much concluded successfully every war they've ever been in since World War One. So I'm not ready to write them off. I think they've done what they've done in the past, like in in Chechnya, when it went bad in Grozny, they backed off, came back and flattened the place with air and artillery uh, indiscriminately, the same thing they did in Aleppo. And I think that's what we're going to see more of in the East. So the question to me is, in this grinding war of attrition, can we keep the Ukrainians in the fight till the Russians become exhausted to the point where Putin can no longer you know, persevere, no matter what he tries. As to the big announcement on the 9th of May, I think what's important to realize here is that whatever happens that day, Putin's going to make into a victory. He controls the message. It can be a, something actually happening on the ground, or it can be, it just happens to be the 9th of May, and that's a great day. So I'm cautiously optimistic based on how the Ukrainians have performed, but I'm not convinced that we're anywhere near the end of this. Over to you, Ranger Dunn. Thank you, Dave. That's a great round. And now we're going to jump to a commercial. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you're going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847 847- Seven five four four six six seven. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. 
Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 26th program, and the 11th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. So we'll move then to our second question, and this is now that the war is underway. What are the aims of Russia, Mr. Putin, if they're the same or not, Ukraine, and Mr. Zelensky, if they're same or not? And to that, then, I would like to present the question to Dave Johnson. Dave, over to you, sir. Thanks, Ranger Doug. So it is really difficult. I've had a number of interviews with the press, and I am always asked, what is Putin going to do? I think the only person that knows that is Putin. So I think the aims are going to be what Putin decides they are uh, when he decides. I would, if I had to speculate, it would be unification of the the Donetsk region, a land bridge to Crimea, and those are kind of minimalist goals under you know Russian control with a separatist proxy puppet government. As for the Ukraine, I tend to agree with the you know the systems I've heard recently that you know Zelensky's in a really tough spot if he has framed this war now as one that's the Russians are committing genocide and massive human rights violations. So this is framed where I don't know what kind of concessions he can make, much less can he even meet with the Russians until, you know, something is resolved about these other issues. So he's kind of painted him into a maximalist position of where the Ukrainians are going to have to stick into it over Ranger Doug. Great. Thanks, Dave. So now, Ambassador, uh, your take on that? Over to you, sir. So there Lots of speculation about what's going on between Vladimir Putin's ears. I've always vehemently objected to armchairs, psychiatrists, and psychologists who look at world leaders, our own, and try to decide whether, you know, what's going on with them. Uh, I'm going to go out and venture with, I don't think it's possible that this is Russia's goal, that Vladimir Putin's goal was to simply consolidate his territorial gains in the eastern part of Ukraine, get that land bridge to Crimea, which you know he desperately needs, and that that's going to be enough. And then, you know, then he can bite his time and then go bite the next chunk off, you know, it, like when he did South of Sessia 2008. I think there's something, he's got a timeline that we don't know, whether it's a philosophical, whether it's a medical, is he a religious zealot uh, who sees this as some kind of holy crusade? He certainly got his uh, his metropolitan, the, you know, the head of the of the Russian Orthodox Church. Kirill is on his side in this. Uh, you know, this is a holy war. You know, we're going to smite the the heathens and the neo Nazis in in, into the west of us. But how does he square the problem of he didn't take Kiev in the three days that everybody thought he was going to? 
you know, a month later, he's made some incremental progress in the East. This is where I'm going to go, you know, Dave has got it exactly right. This is going to be grinding warfare where he'll, so this is where I'm going to disagree. The last land battle conflict that Russia won was 1945. Everything's been done by the air with heavy weapons blowing the crap out of everything, flattening it, whether it was Aleppo, whether it was Grozny. They got away with it in 56 in Hungary. They got away with it in 68 in, in Czechoslovakia. They got away with it in Solidarnost, Afghanistan. And this is where I'd like to you know follow up on this one. He's done a good job of keeping the narrative away from his own people. What drove the Soviets out of Afghanistan was 15,000 dead Russians. And the babushkas saw their boys coming home and could not understand why that was going on. Interesting uh, factoid that I saw was the majority of the kids that are getting killed wearing the Russian uniform right now are not Russian, ethnically Russian. They're coming from other parts of Russia. These are the conscripts that have been thrown in a battle with no training, no clue what's going on. So at this point, Dave's right. You know, the only weapon that Russia knows how to use to win is to just annihilate everything in its path. But I still go back to, you know, sort of, I think at the end of the day, what Putin really wants is for Ukraine to take a knee, kiss the sword and say, you know, we will never be part of the West and we acknowledge your almightiness, Emperor Putin, and we will not sin anymore. But he really wants to control the Black Sea as much of as he can. He wants his near abroad under his control and the big problem he has right now is the economy is, you know, the wheels are coming off of it. You know, the oligarchs, you know, their money is being tracked down with the Pandora Papers and lots of other things that are going on right now. So it's going to be interesting about whether he's content to declare victory with this is what I really was after, or does he trot a big surprise out? And with that, over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Ambassador. So now, Jason, over to you, please, sir. Thanks, Doug. Uh, kind of, as I was saying earlier, Russia's war aims, Putin's, Putin's objectives are in flux, and those are being driven by the reality on the ground that his plan didn't work when, when he went in to try and take Kiev. So he's had to curtail his ambitions and his objectives, and uh, I agree with Dave and with the ambassador. He's really going for that linkage to down to the Crimea so that he can control the Black Sea, and he's gotten access to that strategic port down there. And he may succeed in that. He may actually secure a land bridge with, with his forces, but I'm not sure how long he'll be able to hold it because the Ukrainians aren't going to let that stand. And uh, I think one of the biggest strategic blunders that the Russians have made is these uh, atrocities that they've committed. These reported atrocities that they've committed will galvanize the Ukrainian population and probably most of the population of Western Europe against the Russians. And you will see this ideological narrative pop up from the West whereby the, the Russians become war criminals. This cannot stand. And there will be a constant resistance movement against Russian occupation of that land bridge. And so I don't know how long he can hold it, but he's going to have to dump an incredible amount of resources and both human and material into that land bridge to hold it and to make it the kind of effective connection that he's looking for. So uh, I don't think he's going to accomplish his long-term uh, objective there. He may take it, but he's not going to be able to hold it. Uh, the Ukrainians, they, they want to retain their independence. Uh, I don't think they ever accepted those eastern provinces as being uh, under Russian or Russian separatist control. But Ukraine wants to remain an independent nation with its own identity, separate and distinct from Russia. And clearly, uh, at this point, they want membership in NATO. And I think that you'll see Zelensky continue to message the West uh, about the 
the righteousness of the Ukrainian fight and why they deserve to be in NATO, despite all of the issues from the past and the corruption and all of those things. Uh, he's making the case, and I think he, you know, he will mess continue to message that hey, this could happen to you too. So let us in, and we'll be a good partner to you. And uh, if there was ever a justification for the Ukraine to be part of NATO, Vladimir Putin handed it to him on a silver platter. Thanks. Jason, that was great. Thank you. Mark, over to you, sir. Thanks, Ranger Doug. I'm going to add a, a little bit of levity, um, and uh, I'm going to quote two uh, famous philosophers, one real and one fictional. The first one was Mike Tyson, who said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and in this case, as Jason said, the Russians got punched in the face pretty hard with their uh, plan to seize Kiev. And their plan has fallen apart. I think Putin has attempted to recalculate, recalibrate, now focusing on eastern Ukraine. But this is where the the second quote comes in from uh, my favorite movie of all time, The Big Lebowski. Dude says, this aggression will not stand, man. And I think with the difference, you know, Dave Johnson pointed out that uh, the Russians had enjoyed uh, a degree of success in in Chechnya through the use of, you know, what I would call uh, brute force and ignorance. They just leveled the cities. I do not think that they will be able, they're, they're going to try. It's because it's part of their, the DNA of the Russian armed forces. So we're going to see continued brute force and ignorance there in Eastern Ukraine. But the difference is, Instead of just having Western countries sending stingers like they did to Afghanistan and arming the Mujahideen, and you know there was really no Western aid in Chechnya, now we have most NATO countries providing artillery, anti-aircraft, anti-tank weapons, and a whole host of things, uh, including if the New York Times is to be believed, highly classified intelligence on locations of general officers and where the Russian leadership is. So it makes it very difficult in the long term for Putin's ability to control eastern Ukraine. He may be able to do it for a time, but I do not see, I don't personally see a situation under which the current government of Ukraine will accept that in the long term. Even if there is a reduction of hostilities, I think we can expect sabotage and subversion by Ukrainians against the Russian occupation there in the east. And in the long term, it will just end up in more body bags. So I, I, again, as I said earlier, I think the long term strategic trends are certainly in favor of Ukraine. Over. Thank you, Mark. And as uh, one of our favorite friends and panelists, uh, Mr. Douglas Wise often says as he inhabits the persona of the Big Lebowski, well, that's just like your opinion, man. But it's a great opinion. And I think uh, each of you has provided a, a great backdrop to move into the next questions. We're going to take a commercial break now. We'll be back in a few moments. This is our 26th program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0 and our 11th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Back in a moment. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. 
If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 26th program on Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, and this is our 11th program on the series Russia Moves into Ukraine. A couple comments on the past discussion. Uh, the problem I think Mr. Putin faces is he's operating on the history of the Soviet Union, which is not the history of the modern Russia. And at the time they began World War II, they had some initial success against the Japanese, led by a Marshal Zhukov, soon to be Marshal Zhukov. And Zhukov proved to be their superb trainer, the only one left over from the earlier days when most of those trainers, including the inimitable Tukhachevsky, were massacred in the purges, several purges, in fact. But what Zhukov was able to do after their initial great losses to the Germans was retrain the army while waiting to hit the Germans at Stalingrad. They were able to rearm, and he actually continued to train to fight and win the Battle of Kursk. Had it not been for Zhukov running that campaign, they might not have won as handily as they did. But the way they won was to develop such defenses in depth that the fearsome German panzer armies couldn't penetrate it on Operation Citadel. Now, the history of Stalingrad, the history of Kursk and all the other things, the amazing assault on Berlin in which the Russians, as far as casualties were concerned, probably lost around 250,000 men. In other words, just to take Berlin alone, they lost almost half what the U.S. lost, casualties including dead, wounded, and missing or POW, to what the U.S. lost in deaths, about 512,000 in all of World War II. We did supply the Russians with over 375,000 trucks, lots of tanks, innumerable numbers of aircraft, which they promptly lost. But as they lost all of these things in the initial phases of the war, they also were able to learn. But it took them years against a foe that fought quite a lot harder and with much more range of focus than 
the Ukrainians have. The Ukrainians are just defending their own territory. In that case, the Russians were defending their territory. This time, they're attacking. And in the 20th century, Russian attacks did not necessarily fare so well until they had really trained themselves, honed themselves, but then the attacks were very brutal. But Zhukov built something into the Russian military, which had been present before, but hadn't been employed during the first part of World War II. And that was the ability to control and operate in a combined arms way, not as well as the Germans, but very effectively with large amounts of mass the Germans couldn't mass. At one point in the war, the Russians had nearly 200 divisions fighting. I mean, in this case, we like to go to war with one or two divisions fighting anybody. We couldn't mass 200 divisions today, although we had millions employed in World War II. So that just gives some context to the discussion so far. So now let's move on to the third question. And that would be, what are the noticeable activities of and or effects on the U.S., NATO, the European Union, the world, including the PRC? And I would like to pass that question to Mark first. Mark, please, over to you, sir. Thanks, Ranger Doug. The one issue that I want to comment on, I, I think Jason kind of hit on this, that the effects, the strategic effects of Putin's invasion of Ukraine have been absolutely counter to his long-term strategic goals. It has succeeded in unifying NATO and the EU in a way that they have not been in decades. And we see that most importantly, I think, and the fact that now we have Sweden and Finland both very seriously considering a NATO membership. And, you know, there's a report today that it could be approved in as little as two weeks. And I think that would be a substantial strategic blow to Putin's overall aims. Again, having unified NATO and EU and to see these countries, which have long been on the sidelines, now coming in and, and seeking NATO membership, which in some cases, you know, when you consider Ukraine and the threat that he saw from NATO membership of Ukraine, you look at where Finland is. And, you know, if Ukraine was a threat, how much larger could Finland be as a NATO member, especially once Sweden and that entire peninsula there is united? So I think um, strategically, there's a lot of blowback. I'll just comment lastly on the PRC. They seem to be happy to kind of let their adversaries engage in conflict, don't seem too eager to bring an end to this. And I think that's because they see their interests being advanced by continued conflict in Europe. Over. That's great, Mark. Thank you very much. Great comment. And now I would like to pass the floor to Dave Johnson. Doctor, over to you, sir. Yeah, so this is a, I agree with everything was just said. I think the, you know, the unintended consequence of which every action like this has some, if not many, is that Putin has actually unified NATO in the West in a way it's not been since the height of the Cold War. Um, I think the interesting development in the United States has been, if you listen to Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Austin's comments after their visits to the Ukraine, they're not there anymore to keep Ukraine from losing. They're apparently there to help them win and to create a condition where Russia will be somewhat you know, neutralized in the future uh, in its ability to commit aggression anywhere. Uh, that coupled with what they're losing, uh, the sanctions effect on their ability to replace it and to, you know, quite frankly, provide the cash flow, much less the technology they require from outside, could be really very damaging. 
And this is, you know, my wife commented once that she said, who would ever have thought Switzerland would freeze someone's bank accounts, which they've done with the Russians for the first time ever. Finally, there's a lot of chatter in the among my colleagues at Brand that do China work and elsewhere about what does this mean for the Chinese? There are a number of speculations that one has created somewhat of a consternation inside the party and that one of their tenets is not violating the sovereignty of a state, uh, which is what Russia's done. The other is it's raising questions about how hard would Taiwan be as a nut to crack with a cross-strait invasion. And finally, I've seen some speculation about second thoughts about was it really a good idea to buy gigantic floating targets in a very constrained naval space called aircraft carriers. Back over to you, Ranger Doug. Great, Dave. And, you know, it's very interesting you mentioned that about China. But, you know, like what Mr. Putin has done, China has basically declared that Taiwan is not really a country, same as Putin has done regarding Ukraine, and has asserted that uh, Taiwan really belongs to it. So we'll have to see how that works out. But I, I do believe that China's timetable and perhaps even its consideration of various methods to assume Taiwan, however it might, have probably had to change. And I think its timeline is, is greatly upset. Well, then that brings us over to the same question being posed to Ambassador Butler. Sir, over to you. Thanks, Richard. Doug, that was, uh, those were like very provocative comments. And so it's time for us to stop saying kumbaya uh, or hand grenade kumbaya. I'm going to start with China. And the news in the last two days that I read was Taiwan purchased artillery systems from the United States, plus some, I think, stingers. And the orders are now back ordered on the order of two or three or four years longer than the Taiwanese thought it was going to happen because of, you got to love this one, you know, supply chain problems and the fact that everything's focused on on supporting Ukraine. So the stocks of things we might have been able to sell to Taiwan are heading to the other direction, not going across the Pacific, going across the Atlantic. So there's some interesting uh, unintended consequences of being all in, as uh, Secretary of Defense Austin said, you know, you know, reducing Russia to the point where it's no longer a threat to neighbors the way it is right now, which is all I can say is good luck with that boss. Uh, my former boss, Russia has proven itself in history as, as being very resilient and be able to bounce back. But the unintended consequence was Taiwan right now is is not getting the weapons that it thought it was going to get. Chinese, on the other hand, are paying attention to the realities of land combat in the age of drones and anti-tank uh, weapons, plus the anti-access air denial capabilities that uh, presumably the Taiwanese have. So yeah, their narrative is, well, Taiwan is part of China, therefore it isn't like uh, Russia attacking a country that's in the United Nations, Ukraine, in which case you know, the Ukrainians can rightfully call an Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, uh, you know, the inherent right for self-defense. But on the other hand, China is in a precarious economic and demographic situation, which is probably pretty similar to what Russia is going through right now. Russia's demography is, is, does not favor it. It's a shrinking country, a shrinking aging country. China is also starting to shrink. It's also aging big time because of the one, the one child policy and it lives by exporting. And if you can't export finished goods and if you can't import raw materials, your economy is going to die and there goes your aspirations to dominate the rest of the world. So my theory is that, you, that the war in Ukraine has, I think, is, is prematurely tipped uh, Xi's hands 
the Premier of China, for his ambitions to dominate his region, I think are going to be a lot harder for him to execute. Uh, he he's, has pulled off one thing with the Solomon Islands, where you know apparently they've got a deal to put a Chinese naval base on the same place, which uh, remind me that another another Asian empire called Japan parked one in, in Guadalcanal once upon a time. It didn't work out well for them either. I'll we'll have to pay attention to that one. But coming back to uh, look, I spent six years, seven years of my life in Finland. The fact that you've got a, a, a sixteen hundred kilometer land border with Russia is not the same threat to Russia that having a country, because there's only 5 million Finns, uh, as having a country like uh, Ukraine with 40 million people who now are rabidly anti-Russian. I mean, you know, would you know, start sticking Russians uh, with knives if they saw them in the streets, as opposed to Finland, which had, bears no animosity. I mean, they, the Finns got over losing a 10% of the country, losing access to the Arctic Ocean. But having said that, in the next two weeks, it's very likely that they will politically agree to apply for NATO membership, which is not, one is not given and two, it doesn't happen overnight. There are two countries in NATO who could block the accession of Finland and Sweden. By the way, nobody's going to lose sleep over Sweden joining joining NATO. It's going to be, you know, the fact that you've got now, you know, the, the Russians will be looking at Finland. The time I spent with the Finns was they went out of their way to not provoking or poking the bear and they prospered and are free and one of the, you know, and allegedly one of the happiest countries on the planet and live there. Yeah, there's a difference between happy and happy. You know, Russia is now going to have to think through, holy crap, we thought we were driving wedges into NATO and the European Union. We succeeded in helping the Brexit vote drive the Brits out of the European Union. That was good news. But now we are just about to see NATO go from 30 to 32 members. And so the, the accession process is going to, especially with election this year, it's going to take six to eight months before the U.S. Senate agrees to uh, these two countries joining, which means the Russians, and I, I'm going to predict this one, the Russians are going to double down their efforts to interfere uh, with our elections to see if they can find candidates that are not transatlanticists. And I, I'm an avowed transatlanticist, not Democrat, not a Republican, not independent. I'm just a transatlanticist. But uh, you know, coming back here in the United States, it's going to be interesting to see the narrative that the Russians push on us versus the narrative that the Ukrainians push on us, which one holds the narrative high ground with the American body politic? Over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Ambassador. It's time to take another commercial break. This is uh, the Veterans Radio R2.0, our 26th program, our 11th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. 
Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We're back at the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 26th program, our 11th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. So with the question that actually looks at the world as a whole, with the U.S., NATO, and the European Union, the People's Republic of China, and others, I'll pass the floor to Jason for his answer. What do you think the noticeable effects are and or activities of any of those in this ongoing fight. Over to you, Jason. Thanks, Ranger Doug. I think, uh, you know, to quote the dude from The Big Lebowski, since that's kind of a theme tonight, that rug, it tied the whole room together. And uh, for the first time in a long time, I think, uh, in the U.S., a lot of people can agree on something, and that is the fact that the Russian invasion of the Ukraine is a bad thing, and we should do something about it. So that is refocused national attention uh, at the Joe Sixpack level on national security uh, and our responsibility as a, as a country to provide stability and security uh, around the world. And so suddenly things like global warming and social domestic goodness and entitlements and all of those things that the Biden administration has been focused on have kind of taken a backseat to foreign policy for, for the first time. Uh, in a while. And uh, so that's encouraging. Um, I hope that that perpetuates. Uh, well, that remains to be seen. Uh, what I really think uh, uh, the effect or the activities uh, in the U.S. is that the U.S. military needs to be paying attention to what's going on in the Ukraine because uh, that initial Russian invasion looked a lot like our thunder roll into uh, Baghdad in 2003. And we saw what happened to the Russian tanks uh, and those columns on the roads. And so all of a sudden, large armored and mechanized formations looked pretty obsolete to me. And large warships floating around in the Black Sea uh, look obsolete also. A couple of guys with a missile and, and a pack of cigarettes and half a bottle of vodka sunk the Russian flagship in the Black Sea. That's hilarious to me. Uh, it's also uh, the canary in the coal mine, and I hope that the Navy is paying attention to that because I completely agree with Dave Johnson. Those large floating target sets called aircraft carriers suddenly look pretty vulnerable and, and uh, dare I say, obsolete. 
I'm an army guy, but but I'll say that speak freely. So it's interesting to see uh, what's happened with technology and how the Ukrainians have leveraged technology, both small individual shoulder fired weapon systems uh, and information and drones, small unmanned uh, aircraft to absolutely offset the Russians' uh, advantage in mass and firepower and, and just the effects have been devastating on the Russians, not only from a material perspective, but also the morale. If you're a Russian conscript in eastern Ukraine right now, your morale is in the dumps because you know that you're a target. It's just a matter of time. Uh, so that's really interesting, and I hope that the Pentagon is paying attention to that because a lot of the big platforms that the Pentagon bases its budget on and drives its strategy with might be obsolete. And I don't know. I'm just a guy that's, that's been out of uh, the military now for almost five years, but uh, that, that bears watching. Uh, NATO and the EU, quote James Bond, they're shaken, but they're not stirred. Uh, they have been, uh, you know, alarmed by the Russian aggression into the Ukraine, but I'm not seeing the kind of unified action and the real commitment to transformation that NATO is going to need to make militarily in order to provide for the defense of Western Europe. And uh, the EU is, is lost in the sauce when it comes to figuring out what they're going to do about energy. Uh, Putin still controls whether or not Europeans freeze or not during the winter, and they haven't really started to make um, uh, the transformation that it's going to take to to reduce their dependence or eliminate their dependence on Russian energy. And so that's a huge lever that Putin holds uh, in the economic sector that drives Western European economic policy and, and Western European slash NATO defense policy. So it'll be interesting to see whether NATO actually they've been shaken, whether they actually stir and do something about it or whether or not they kind of like move back into their natural position of spending uh, minimal resources on collective defense and uh, looking out for economic and social issues more than they do for defense. Uh, on the other hand, NATO is suddenly in style again. All of a sudden, all of these fringe states, and I don't mean to say that in a negative context, but Finland, as we were talking about, suddenly some of these uh, these countries want to join NATO because uh, it's a question of survival. If, if Putin's willing to invade the Ukraine and, and uh, do the kind of damage he's done there, well, what would stop him from invading Estonia or Latvia or Finland or, or uh, any of those other countries? So I think um, that's an interesting dynamic because you see those states that are most threatened by Russian aggression perhaps driving the train on NATO's policy and, and whether or not NATO is actually going to come together and, and, and become an effective alliance again, because it's been an old boys club for a long time. Challenges at the membership dues are increasing. You see the German, uh, the Germans uh, starting to increase their investment in, in defense. Uh, so that'll be an interesting uh, trend to watch uh, as the NATO and the EU realize that that threat that they thought wasn't there anymore uh, that could be addressed with economic ties and, and, and social, cultural ties is still there, and they need to worry about it. They need to pay attention. The Chinese, uh, the PRC, they're watching closely. They're watching the West's response to see if actually the Western world will absolutely come together and counter Russian aggression, uh, or, or whether it will kind of devolve and disintegrate into each nation looking out for its own interests, which is probably what the PRC would like to see. 
money drives this train drives the train for the Chinese. Absolutely uh, does because that's how they fund not only their government but also their defense apparatus. And so they will meter their relationship with the Russians to prevent the perception that they're closely aligned uh, with too closely aligned with Russia because they need that economic linkage to the Western world. That's what drives their trains. They're capitalists uh, and communists at the same time. And it drives them crazy, but that's what they are. Um, and they think in terms of decades, not years or months uh, or election cycles. They think long term. So they will watch and buy their time and move uh, when it's to their advantage. The difference between the Chinese and the Russians is they have a multi-sector economy. They are involved in all kinds of stuff. And uh, the Russians have a two-sector economy. The Russians export gas and guns. And when you take those two away from Russia, their cash flow dries up. And uh, that is what underpins Putin's administration and his government. So really, the Russians are junior varsity. They're a bar band. Uh, what we really should be paying attention to is the Chinese and how they respond and react and adapt to what's going on in the Ukraine. Because uh, the Chinese are definitely world class. And uh, they are a true peer competitor. Okay, now we'd like to move on to our fourth question, which is status of ceasefire, truce, or peace efforts. and. Uh, to open that round, Jason, please take it away. Hey, thanks, Doug. Uh, I'll keep my remarks short on this one. I think um, ceasefire and peace efforts have faltered universally to date. None have been particularly decisive. Uh, they've all been uh, very short-term in nature and designed to change tactical conditions on the ground. Uh, for example, evacuating non-combatants or wounded folks but uh, none of them have uh, really changed the course of, of the fight in the Ukraine. Thanks. Great, Jason. That's, that's, a, that's a good option. Thank you very much. Mark, then over to you, please, sir. I will keep my marks brief also, and we'll just throw my lot in with uh, Jason. There, I don't see anything right now, um, either in talks that have already occurred or anything in the near future that is going to lead to, that I think will lead to any type of a breakthrough. The sides are um, irreconcilably opposed at this point, and no no real um, interest on either side in making any real concessions to bring the uh, conflict to a halt. So I think we're uh, we're, we're yeah, if it was Groundhog Day, I'd say we're in for uh, at least six more weeks of fighting. Over. Great. Thank you, Mark. And Dave, then over to you, sir. Yeah, I, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, the I think we're in a place where Zelensky has no freedom of action. Um, given what he said about war crimes and genocide and other things, um, that he has painted himself into a diplomatic corner in some ways. Uh, my sense also is that Putin just didn't interest at this point until he has something that he can put on the table and say, you know, this is it. This is what we have to have. And I don't know if he knows what that is yet. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that the success of Ukraine has actually made it difficult for Mr. Putin to do anything. Plus, if he's up against, as Ambassador Butler said, this 9th of May aspect of declaring some kind of victory, the victory has to be followed by some kind of consolidation, and that will take time. So I've got some things I've saved up from our discussion that we'll visit in the last round. We'll treat it kind of like Jeopardy. 
But I would like then, since we've concluded this round, uh, to move on to the last official question anyway. Uh, what can we look forward to in the, in the coming weeks? And, and in order to start that out, I would like to give the floor to Ambassador Butler. Hey, Ranger Doug. Um, we're into closing questions. Uh, um, kind of reflecting back on, and, and this is, you know, vehement agreement with, with the previous comments about the likelihood of, of a ceasefire or some kind of peace agreement. The Russians have dangled the, you know, the prospect just, you know, because they, they were trying to buy time while they, while they rearranged the, uh, the decks on the, on the sinking Titanic. Um, I, I'll make, I'll go out on a limb and say uh, that the Russians are consolidating their position in the Donbass, Luhansk and, and Donbass areas. They will annex them uh, and they will declare that they have uh, achieved their objectives to protect Russian populations, which, by the way, is that's enshrined in the Russian constitution. They have this obligation to to protect Russians wherever they find them. That was one of their pretexts for going in the first place, uh, both, you know, both 10 years ago and then, you know, and then this last couple of months. And they will say, you know, we're done, we're there. Uh, and then they'll attempt to shift the onus onto the Ukrainians to accept a truce or a ceasefire uh, or risk, you know, continuing destruction of key infrastructure nodes that make life miserable for Ukrainians. So that's my prediction. And I think we might, we might actually see that on, on May 9th. The second possibility uh, is, you know, is this, this second alternative universe is that Putin actually declares war in Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure what he would gain from that. There's been speculation in the press on this one. I've got no particular insight, uh, which means that, you know, now it's, now it's, it's a battle to finish, but, but one of the things that's motivating uh, Volodymyr Zelensky with, with his battle, the narrative, which has been, you know, beautifully captured in previous comments today um, was he's got to keep the West on his side He's got a, you know, there's a $33 billion uh, aid package, which is, is in the, in the Congress, uh, which the administration wants. The, the moment that Zelensky senses the West doesn't stand behind him anymore because the stakes are too high, that's when he would seriously sit down and, and, and try to cut some kind of a deal. But right now, He's got a winning hand. Putin, you know, has got a losing hand, but he can't admit he's got a losing hand. This is going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting period. Uh, and if it rolls into the election period, it'll be interesting to see how far in the background it fades, or whether Russia and uh, Russia and Ukraine can find a way to bring it to the fore and somehow make this uh, something uh, you know, which which causes. You know the various parties in the United States decide. You know we don't. We we need to stop stop throwing money at this problem because there's nothing in it for. You know this is the great Lebowski uh, who said Joe Sixpack. Over to you. Great answer, Ambassador. And now please, uh, Jason. Over to you. Okay. Thanks, Doug. Um, so um, predictions of pundits are often inaccurate or, or way off balance. But I'll I'll, I'll take an educated guess at what I or an uneducated an uncultured guess of what I think is going to uh, transpire over the coming weeks. Um, I don't think we'll see any exciting policy changes from the United States government, the administration, or from the EU or NATO. They're uh, fearful of provoking Putin 
He's using language about World War III. He's mentioned nuclear weapons and, has got, and that has them running scared. Um, they're worried about provoking Putin. Unfortunately, his plan fell apart. He's got thousands of casualties and extensive loss of uh, combat systems. His plan didn't work. So he's provoked already. Uh, but we won't see uh, anything decisive out of uh, Washington, D.C. or NATO headquarters anytime soon. Uh, looking at it from the tactical level as a former tanker, and it breaks my heart to see all those tanks blown up, but, uh, you know, i got to hand it to the Ukrainians. They're doing a great job. The warmer spring weather is already decreasing trafficability, and so uh, Putin's advantage of mass and his large armored formations will be even more dependent on roads uh, and infrastructure, and they won't be able to use uh, cross-country terrain because... Uh, as the, the weather warms up, all that ground in January that was frozen that supported tank tracks now is soft and mushy. And uh, so you'll see uh, the Ukrainians use that to their advantage and be able to absolutely concentrate the fires of their small shoulder-fired anti-tank, anti-armor weapon systems uh, to devastate any kind of concentrations of Russian mechanized or armored forces. That'll be interesting to watch. Also, as the leaves come back on the trees, it's springtime, and um, that will give uh, an advantage to the defenders, the Ukrainians. Also, they'll be able to hide uh, in the wood lines and the tree lines and whatnot and close the distance between themselves and the Russians. That'll give them an advantage. And so it'll be interesting to watch what the effects are on the Russians. Uh, train advise and assist efforts will ramp up. They're continuing to ramp up. I think NATO and, and the United States are getting organized. It takes a while to crank up a train advise and assist effort, but you'll see um, weapon systems flowing in from the West and NATO will pull Ukrainians out of the Ukraine into Poland and other nearby countries to train them on shoulder-fired anti-tank guided missile systems, shoulder-fired anti-aircraft systems, and perhaps uh, land-launched anti-ship systems, and then send them back into the Ukraine, back into the fight. So it's great to send the arms and equipment in there, but if you don't train the Ukrainians how to use them, then they're not as effective. Um, at the strategic level, kind of outside of the military uh, lane, the refugee flow from the Ukraine, I think it's at about 4 million people right now. Uh, I think as the Russians try to consolidate their gains on that land corridor to the Crimea, you'll see that increase several million more people. And as I understand it, most of them are women and children. Most of the the men have stayed in Ukraine to fight, but you're going to see millions of refugees continue to flow into Western Europe. That will have a social and an economic impact on Western Europe, and they'll have to account for that uh, as they look to provide housing, education, health care, uh, food, just the basic necessities of life for millions of people that have been pushed out of the Ukraine by uh, the Russian invasion. Two drivers of the refugee flow that will increase it. The Russian atrocities uh, will be magnified and amplified by the media. Uh, and so you will see that drive more people to move out of the Ukraine to avoid that from happening to themselves. Uh, 
and then just the destruction of infrastructure, whether it's hospitals or schools or roads, transportation, food, and even the fact that the Ukrainians aren't going to plant a normal crop cycle this spring. They're not going to be able to do that because the Russians are driving their BMPs and T-72s through the fields where they would normally grow grain and corn. So you will see that accelerate the flow of refugees to Western Europe. Um, as Dave Johnson said, the Russians understand brutality, and they've used it to good effect uh, in World War II, Afghanistan, Chechnya, other places. That's what they will go to. They're already starting to shift that way. And as they become more violent and kinetic, that will become their only real tool to subjugate the population and, and to secure their gains along that land bridge to the Crimea. So you'll see that, and that, again, will also accelerate that refugee flow. Finally, uh, I won't make a prediction here, but what's going to be really interesting is watching how the Europeans, you know, resolve their dependence on Russian energy with uh, their economic growth and with their ability to form a kind of a collective defensive strategy against the Russians, because Europe is held hostage by Russian energy dependence, especially uh, the Germans. Uh, and they've got a lot of work to do if they're going to free themselves from that uh, yoke. Uh, unfortunately, the warmer weather as springtime comes, you don't need to heat your house as much, so you don't need as much natural gas. Uh, and so perhaps that sense of urgency diminishes a little bit. But as we move through the summer months and get in towards late August and September and temperatures start to drop, you'll see that become more of a factor. So that will be interesting to watch. I won't make a prediction there. Thanks. Great. Great comments there, Jason. So over to Mark, please. Uh, thanks, Roger Doug. I'll just keep it brief here. Um, I think the fact that the Russians have, um, you know, you have Sergei Lavrov and Putin – claiming that they're fighting modern day Nazis um, and even going so far as to accuse the Israelis of supporting Nazis um, says to me that the, the Russian narrative and their perspective on this is uh, becoming a little bit unhinged and they recognize that they're, they're losing this narrative battle even even likely domestically, although we don't have uh, a great deal of information um, about public, you know, a reliable information on public perception within Russia. Um, but again, the fact that they're trotting this out, particularly in the run up to the 9th of May, uh, says to me that they're it, it, it communicates to me a a sense of desperation on the part of the Russian leadership. Um, and despite all the, the destruction um, in Ukraine, uh, it seems to me that the Ukrainian people have weathered this and have made a decision that it is better to, to suffer these near-term losses than to submit to the yoke of Russia. And, um, they also have their historical memories. And I just think at, at this point, uh, certainly the Ukrainians are willing uh, to bear the cost of it. And it seems at least in, in the near term, uh, the Europeans are, are willing to bear the cost of the embargo and the threats of increased um, 
you know, uh, potential blowback for supplying arms and ammunition. And it is, um, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen on the 9th of May, but I, I do not see things trending favorably uh, for the Russian strategic objectives anytime soon. Over. Thank you, Mark. It's time to take another commercial break. This is uh, the Veterans Radio R2.0, our 26th program, our 11th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC... Veterans Disability Application Caddy is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Okay, now we've arrived at that lightning round where each participant will volunteer for a question, and we'll take uh, two minutes to answer it. So question number one, looking for a volunteer. What is the future of tank or ship or maneuver warfare, and has the Ukraine-Russia conflict change that in your mind? Who would like to take that? Uh, Ranger Doug, Dave Johnson. I think I'd like to jump on that if I could. Please do. So I recently wrote an article about, you know, the, the supposed death of the tank uh, and long live the javelin, the switchblade, and whatever else is out there. My sense is, you know, the death of the tank has been heralded after the 73 war, with the Arab-Israeli war with Sagers, uh, with precision ATGMs in Lebanon 2006, uh, now with drones and top attack weapons. Um what we've seen in the past is that 
if you're going to have any kind of ground maneuver, you need protected lethal mobility that robots at this juncture are not capable of, of executing. So the question is, if the tank is still viable, what do you do to make it survivable? Um, I think it's a technical issue as far as extending like a trophy system across the top of the tank. And drones are going to be a problem for every system on the battlefield. We've got to figure out a solution to. So I guess the uh, the only other thing I would say is really too early to tell on almost anything we're seeing coming out of the war. They asked the uh, senior advisor to the head of the Ukrainian military, you know, what was causing the most damage to the Russians. He said, switchblades and anti-tank systems slowed them down. What we've been killing them with is our field artillery. So that is a time-old lesson. I think what's hurting the Russians is their inability to execute what's pretty complicated, which is integrated air-ground maneuver where you suppress with fires and take the javelins out. Then you maneuver. Uh, in their army, it's always been artillery conquerors and, and infantry occupies. It's been called an artillery army with tanks. So lastly, I would just add one last. There's a lot of talk about we're expending our arsenal and giving away all our weapons, and we won't be able to replace them. Um, I would ask folks, well, what we were going to use those weapons for in, in the first place. If you're talking about the defense of Europe, every Russian system taken out by Javelin is one we don't have to worry about someday. So I'm all for going all in and making sure the Ukrainians have as much as we can supply. But again, I caution, um, I wrote in the article yesterday about the Russian bear. It's like the movie Rob Roy, where the, you know, the master duelist Archie Cunningham is chasing Rob Roy all around the room with his rapier. And Rob Roy is dragging his saber along eventually, his claymore, aptly named, and eventually grabs Cunningham's blade and cuts him almost in half with his claymore. I don't think the Russians are over. They're dragging around the battlefield, but they've got a lot of stuff left, uh, mainly inside their cannon tubes. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you. That was a great answer, and I really appreciate you taking that one on. It's a tough question. Okay, so what is the possibility and what are the prospects for the PRC's yuan as a world currency? I'm looking for a volunteer. Hey, Ranger Doug, Bastard, Bastard L, uh, sign me up for this one. Got it. Go ahead. All right. Well, you know, I, look, it's hard to top the, the, the image of, of Rob Roy and a Claymore slicing somebody in half. But uh, let me let me go with what 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 is going to what's going to hurt in the long run. Uh, Chinese and the American economies are about the same size in terms of uh, gross domestic product. Having said that, the population of China is three to four times the size of the United States. And it's it, it, it's experiencing the same problems. So the question would be um, the prospect of the yuan becoming the next global currency on the assumption that, that Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies doesn't do it um, is unlikely for one primary reason. And I'm going to go this with sanctity of contracts and rule of law. Are you going to borrow and you know money in in yuan's? Are you going to trust the Chinese central bank to act uh, ethically and and reasonably transparently? Okay, so now uh, we'll go to the third question, which is: Is it right to send the Ukrainians all this disparate NATO and other equipment, and and how can they possibly assimilate and operate with it, given the fact that they're fighting 
while they must train and then operate with the myriad of weapons and ammunition types and so forth. Uh, I'm looking for someone to take that question, please. Hey, this is Jason. I'll take that. Thanks, Jason. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so my answer is yes, and uh, which isn't really an answer, but let me explain. So large, complex systems like uh, howitzers, tanks, uh, fighter aircraft, helicopters, no, definitely not. They're, they don't have the logistics sustainment system to uh, keep those platforms in the fight. And the level of training that it takes to operate an armored vehicle or a helicopter or a howitzer um, takes a long time to teach. So uh, what they need are simple solutions that they understand that work. Uh, they can be employed by small units that are highly mobile. And um, when you put a tank into the fight for the Ukrainians, that thing requires fuel and ammunition and a logistics tail. And all of that stuff is targetable. The tank is targetable. The ammunition dump is targetable. The fuel truck is targetable. And so I don't think that large complex systems are, are the solutions uh, for the Ukrainians. What they've been in, uh, successful with so far are small, simple systems with two or three buttons that one uh, guy can carry. Uh, so um, you look at the javelin, the switchblade, the stinger some of the small commercial off-the-shelf drones that they're using, they are absolutely being effective with those systems, and that's what's working for them. And so that's what we should uh, be looking to push towards them. You know, Lawrence uh, Olivier, or Lawrence of Arabia, uh, said, you know, better to let them fight it their way than to try and teach them how to fight it your way. And so uh, I totally screwed that quote up, and I sound like the dude from The Big Lebowski. But really, uh, what's working is working for them right now, and they need more of that. Uh, and when we try to push large systems in their Black Hawks and M1 tanks and that kind of stuff, or even uh, you know, I've heard that the Pol uh, the Polish want to push T-72s uh, to the Ukrainians. Those systems are targetable by the Russians. The Russians know how to fight those systems. They know how to target those systems, and that will absolutely uh, backfire. So small, simple, lightweight systems that uh, they can employ uh, are going to be the key to success. It's working so far, so why should we fix it? Uh, bigger, more complex stuff isn't going to uh, help them at all. Thanks. So our last question in this round is uh, just a consideration of the, the bigger picture and, and what may be causing uh, not only consternation in the world, but maybe the reason why we don't see things coming together as uh, the various provocateurs thought they should. Uh, the question is simply this, Russia is not the Soviet Union, Z is not Mao. What are the implications? And I guess by default, that falls to you, Mark, but I think you're perfectly set to answer that question. Then over to you. Thanks, Richard Doug. Yeah, I'd be happy to, to address that. You know, the, uh, what's the old adage? Uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, I think the, the uh, corollary to that, though, is uh, handle with caution. Anytime you start looking at historical analogies, it's very easy um, to fall into the historical analogy trap and say, well, you know, Putin is very much like Stalin or Xi is very much like Mao. And while there may be some superficial similarities, um, there are real 
and substantial differences in the the context, the circumstances, and and the individual leaders um, and their perspectives, their advisors that make um, simple historical analogies uh, fraught with peril and typically um, from a from a, a statecraft perspective uh, not very useful. Um, at the end of the day, you want to remember that you know. Human nature is, uh, I believe, immutable, but the specific circumstances in which individuals find themselves uh, can be very different. And and again, for outsiders, um, hard to understand. That's what, you know, we talked for you know many many years, decades during the Cold War of Kremlinologists. Uh, people, you know, that were able, who spent all their time trying to understand the thinking and the uh, perspectives of of Soviet leaders. Um, the situation's really no uh, simpler. In fact, it's probably more complex today um, in trying to understand that. So, I would just simply end with a a word of caution. Um, about those analogies. They're useful to a point, uh, but they're absolutely um, not uh, infallible predictors of how world leaders are going to um, approach any given problem. They can be helpful for understanding previous responses, but you really have to, you have to understand all the nuances and the context um, and, and carefully apply them and only in limited means. That was a great round. And thank you so much for taking each of those questions. They were each very important and your answers were brilliant. I would just like to say that uh, we Americans and, and we in the West would be well to, to observe not only our Clausewitzian approach to war, but uh, also what Sun Tzu would say, which is, you know, understand or to know the enemy and know yourself. You need not fear the outcome uh, of a thousand battles. I believe that uh, uh, Mr. Putin and uh, even Mr. Xi Jinping may not necessarily be following that same proverb, even though it is a Chinese proverb, simply because uh, I think they've been consumed by the same hubris that sometimes motivates leaders when they pursue things out of their own personal vanity. Uh, and obviously, each has assembled a coterie of of uh, sycophants around them, Putin with his Siloviki and his, and his oligarchs, and... Uh, Xi Jinping with the members of his inner circle and so forth, but there are five in China. Uh, there are other things at play in, in each place, so we'll have to see how this plays out. But I think a lot does depend on what we see May 9th, which is only five days away. Uh, what is it that Putin announces and then what happens after that? So, uh, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you each for joining us tonight. And I would also then, in the same order that we did in the last question itself, uh, ask you for a closing comment. Uh, and that would then open up with uh, Ambassador Butler, followed by Jason, Mark, and Dave. Ambassador, over to you, sir. Yeah. The final comment, Ranger Doug, is, is um, uh, there was a really good book on the, on the, on the Cold War uh, that quoted Stalin or tried, looked into Stalin's mind 
1945 and, you know, and posed the question of, you know, with all the forces and the momentum the Red Army had on his side, uh, there were, there were, some of his advisors were saying that they should just keep going west um, and just finish the victory of communism over capitalism. And Stalin uh, argued for patience because he says when the war is over and the threat of Nazism, which has caused the, the, the capitalist uh, states to, to join forces, goes away, they will turn on each other. Uh, and then, then eventually communism, socialism will, will, will win out. Two years ago, I thought that, you know, that Stalin was about 70 years ahead of his time. We were looking at, you know, each each country, you know, looking out for itself. The, you know, the Brits, you know, jumping out of the European Union, the Germans doing their own things, the Dutch getting rid of all their tanks. <clears throat> and then suddenly out of the blue, you know, a unifying force emerges from the east uh, one more time, which causes all of the capitalist countries to 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 uh, unite, join forces uh, with the, even the possibility that six months from now, the European Union will swear off its uh, its dependency on Russian hydrocarbons, uh, which is a remarkable, remarkable opportunity, you know, to kind of reset, refocus. Uh, we, I think we all remember the hysteria we had back in the 80s when the first natural gas pipeline was built between uh, the Soviet Union and Germany. Um, you know, and the, 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 the Europeans have been blind to the reality of what's out to the West. Um, but at the same time, we've got to look for an opening of how do you create a, a lasting partnership with Moscow when this is over? We can't be enemies forever. We can't, you know, they've got nuclear weapons. We've got nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, there's space for all of us. Uh, that's going to be the big challenge that is we'll have to come out of this given all of the horrific war crimes that Russia has committed against Ukraine, which are incredibly well documented. Kind of so. It's it's an interesting thought experiment of where will we be five years now, uh, you know, when Putin presumably is not in power anymore and Russia is like curled up in a field position, you know, trying to figure out how to recover. Over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Ambassador. As you know, I hand out Michael Pillsbury, who's a friend, 100-year marathon and also Ghost Fleet. And I, after reading those and assimilating many other things, including long conversations with uh, Dean Cheng, a mutual friend of Dave and mine, honestly believe that what may shape up out of this is that Russia eventually, as well as Ukraine, uh, kind of sue for peace eventually to protect their flank, their rear actually, from China, and they each apply for EU and NATO membership. But that's probably long in the future, depending on how this conflict comes out, because I believe China is already eating its way into Siberia and other places. And as it's encircling the world with its Belt and Road Initiative and other traditional espionage methods, is trying to capture the governments at the local, the regional, and the national level in uh, in every country that it can possibly operate in, including our own. So we're going to see some major changes uh, as the world becomes aware of this, and I'm not sure what it will mean in the end. Perhaps we won't be around to see it. Uh, Jason may be, but uh, the rest of us may have to uh, hold it in our dreams. Over to you, Jason, then for a closing comment, please, sir. Uh, thanks for the uh, props. I'm not as young as you think I am, but I appreciate it. So thanks, Ranger Doug. Um, I, I think uh, what we need to think about is how do we defeat Putin and his ideas without alienating Russia and the Russian population? And and the way to do that is with better ideas. So, um, you know, what he's doing in the Ukraine right now is misguided. Um, 
it's absolutely um, not in line with human rights or Western ideals or human rights or any of that stuff. And it's not going to work. So at the end of the day, no matter how many tanks and, and, and lives are lost, his plan is going to fail. Uh, so the question is, how do we defeat that idea that he has of you know uh, Russian dominance in the world and Russian paranoia against the West without alienating the Russian population? So that is the highest form of the art. How do you defeat uh, the enemy without fighting? So, yeah, you know, we kind of said this during the so-called global war on terror. How do we defeat uh, the idea of terrorism, what it stands for? And this is no different. So we need a better idea. How do we influence and inform the Russian population and the people to prop Putin up uh, and give him the power to do the kind of crap that he's doing in the Ukraine? Uh, to the point that they realize that uh, his ideas and his plan aren't going to work. They're not in the best interests of Russia and the Russian population. Uh, and they are, in fact, um, um, doomed to, to failure. And if we can figure that out, um, we're going to be in a good position. But it's going to take um, NATO and the EU and all of those nations kind of coming together and brainstorming that idea. And that's tough to do when everybody has their own national interests. But... Uh, so, um, again, I, I would just close with saying that this is a war of ideas, and Putin's idea is that Russia is oppressed by the West, and they need to regain their former glory, and one of the ways to do that is to conquer one of their former client states, um, which is fallacious and flawed to the core, and uh, NATO and the United States need to come up with a better idea that will counter that and, and tamp it down and absolutely bring about um, the fall of Putin and his coterie of um, supporters and perhaps uh, on some level transform Russia into something that's more like what Western Europe thought it was in the 90s and the 2000s. Thank you, Jason. Mark, then over to you, sir. Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. I've said this uh, many, many times before. Um, our, our long-term interests uh, are, a, as Ambassador uh, Butler said, uh, to have a positive um, relationship with Russia. Um, and Russia's long-term interests, I think, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China, which will not, um, will never treat them as a, as a true partner or an ally, uh, do lie with the West. Vladimir Putin will not live forever, and we need to figure out how to develop the relationships and build the foundations for a, um, a long-term strategic partnership um, and with Russia that will will outlive, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, and will be in the long-term interest of of the Russian people. And again, I think they do have much more in common with Europe uh, and the rest of Europe and the United States than they do with uh, the Chinese. And we can make that case to the Russian people directly um, and, and build those foundations now so that when, whenever Putin does leave the scene, uh, we're prepared to build a better relationship.
Over. Mark, that was great, and thank you so much. Dave, then uh, the conclusion is up to you. Over to you, sir. Well, thanks, Ranger Doug. Gives me. It was really good to listen to everybody else's comments as I was sitting here to find, formulate mine. But I would caution that we are seeing this war through Ukrainian and Western eyes, and we have to be a little bit, you know, more willing to see how this is going to develop, uh, because I fear that. Um, we are now calling this a long war, and it's less than three months long. And that's a, a it took the the Germans when they attacked Ukraine with four million combatants that long to get and capture Kiev in World War II. Um, I worry about Western patience. Um, I also worry that you know the what is we're seeing has not been seen in over 70 years in Europe since World War II. And I worry about the ability to hold everybody together. Uh, I think we're on the right track to do that. But I would caution that um, it's really too soon to tell. Um, Zhou Enlai was famously quoted when he was asked about the French Revolution. Uh, He said, it's too early to say. He was actually talking about the 68 student revolt but never let a good quote get ruined by facts. Um, So I think we're in that place where we really don't know yet, but we have to be prepared for the long haul. And that means regardless of what Putin does or threatens, there can be no space between us and, and the Ukrainians in this fight. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dave. That was, that was terrific. And I I have to say each of you are, such professionals and so highly experienced that I'm really kind of awestruck by the conversation tonight. Thanks for joining us tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We're concluding the 26th program in the Veterans Radio R 2.0. This is our 11th program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. We were joined tonight by our guests, Ambassador Lawrence Butler, Colonel Mark Mitchell, who also served as Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, Colonel retired Dave Johnson and Jason Black. Both Ambassador Butler's father and Mark Mitchell uh, were the recipients of the U.S. Army's Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest award for valor. Ambassador Butler's father at the uh, Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, where he was in the 3rd Infantry Division, an Army division, along with the Marines that you remember were up there with Chesty Puller and others. And Mark Mitchell was awarded his for actions at the Kalijangi prison break Uh, in 2002, where Johnny Michael Spann, the CIA officer, was killed with about 400 Al-Qaeda and Taliban members rioting and attempting to take over the prison. We thank them so much for joining, and we are amazed by the quality of our guests and also the quality of discussion. We look forward to next week's program, which will be on the same subject. Unfortunately, we'll continue to do this as long as the war in Ukraine continues. Uh, We have one other program, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Wounded But Not Broken, with our host and friend Patrick Scroggin. Please don't forget to subscribe to this program. We're available on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, several other platforms, including our own RSS feed, a total of 12 platforms in all. Thank you once again for joining us. Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, 
no one left behind. 